On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. Pretty varied uh, selection of front pages today, despite there being some common threads uh, across some of the papers today. Uh, the lead story in the Sunday Times Gardaí drafted overseas to help catch the Kinahans. A senior detective is being sent to the Irish Embassy in Abu Dhabi in the UAE to finalise efforts to arrest and extradite the leaders of the Kinahan cartel. That's according to John Mooney the crime and security correspondent of the Sunday Times this morning. A second officer is also being sent to Bangkok to coordinate the state's operations against Irish gangs based in Thailand and Southeast Asia. Garda headquarters is due to announce the position shortly as part of a renewed drive to confront organised crime. This move coincides with the dispersal of the cartel's leadership across the Middle East and to parts of the Asian continent as the coalition of policing agencies prepare to extradite the Kinahans and their associates to the United States to face criminal charges that could see them imprisoned for life. Daniel Kinahan, who's the de facto leader of the transnational gang and his associates, are moving between the UAE, Qatar, Oman and Jordan. But some figures in the organisation have relocated to Southeast Asia where they have extensive financial investments reports the Sunday Times this morning the mail on Sunday one week of A&E trolley chaos kills 50 patients that's the estimation from a data scientist from Belfast he says that delays in patients getting a hospital bed will potentially cause at least 50 unnecessary deaths in a week based on current figures according to analysis carried out by a leading data scientist Um, he has analysed NHS and HSE emergency rooms and says that weekly data provided by health authorities here suggests that 51 preventable deaths will occur each week during the current dangerous overcrowding levels and lengthening A&E waiting times in our hospitals. Uh, that's the front page of the Mail on Sunday. Also, uh, a hospitals-themed front page on the Business Post, which tells us that Stephen Donnelly, who has been accused by the opposition of being something of a spectator uh, and not doing enough to try and intervene to prevent the current crisis of overcrowding in hospitals, Stephen Donnelly raised concerns with the HSE, we are told, in recent months about the quality of the winter plans of several hospitals, and he queried the number of consultants working at weekends as his department warned that significant surges in hospitalisations were likely. Uh, In a series of letters sent between May and July, the Minister for Health urged the executive of the HSE to expedite an agreed plan to fill emergency department consultants and nursing roles. In one letter in June, Donnelly told the then HSE Chief Executive Paul Reid that certain sites needed to revisit their winter plans and detailed the gaps in several areas, including staffing levels. He said it was concerning that hospitals were already experiencing mid-winter levels of overcrowding during the summer months and he warned that we may well see very significant significant surges in hospitalisations through COVID in autumn and winter, which could greatly exacerbate those pressures. So Stephen Donnelly evidently making clear that he has been trying to um, coax the HSE into some actions, although maybe that in itself raises some questions as to what degree the government is able to influence these things anymore. And that's something we might discuss uh, in a minute. Uh, also in the Business Post, Pat McDonough, the Supermax founder and hotelier, says his insurance premiums have risen by 25% in the last year, despite a sharp fall in the average awards being made for personal injury costs. Um, and also an interesting story about the LDA, which was the subject of the front page of the Business Post last week. Um, Killian Woods reports today the state is paying up to €138,000 more to build a home than other European countries building similar affordable housing. That's according to a confidential report by the LDA. It's a 40-page research document obtained by the Business Post, which has not been shared with the Department of Housing and which was labelled as private and confidential, completed in April of 2021. The LDA is three and a half billion euro in available capital and it was set up, as, as you might have remember from last week, in September 2018 to try and expedite the building of 150,000 homes on state lands. Uh, but the confidential report set, outlines how much the LDA would spend to build housing on a site in NACE compared to similar housing projects in France, Belgium and Germany. The report found that the agency's construction and development costs were significantly higher than state builders in those other countries. Uh, we're going to be joined by Killian Woods for a few minutes later this hour to discuss uh, more detail what's in that report. Uh, 
but we'll finish for now with the Sunday Independent. A few different stories in the front page. Leo Varadkar saying that the record 5 billion euro tax surplus from last year will be used to build up cash reserves and pay off the national debt, effectively going into a rainy day fund, despite the complaints of some people that now is the rainy day. Um, but the main story on the Sunday Independent is plummeting public confidence in the public, in the country's health service has been laid bare by a new Sunday Independent Ireland Thinks opinion poll which has found that almost three quarters of people, 72%, would only attend a hospital emergency department if they thought their life depended on it. The public's damning condemnation of the health service comes as this new paper can reveal that serious six, six, excuse me, six serious incidents involving harm to patients were recorded in emergency departments in the first five weeks of Ireland's worst ever hospital overcrowding crisis. The poll conducted on Thursday and Friday also found that only one in four people, 23%, would attend a hospital if their GP recommended that they do so. In other words, that three quarters of people, if told to go to a hospital by their GP, would be reluctant to do so, um, which is pretty striking. To discuss those stories and more, I'm joined in studio by political reporter uh, at independent.ie, Gabby Agadavitskita, and by Aoife Barry, who's assistant news editor at the journal.ie. Uh, good morning and happy new year to you both. Um, Gabby, it's a particularly striking poll um, about the, the attitudes of people towards um, hospital emergency departments. The idea that 72% of people say that they would only go to an emergency department if they thought that their life literally depended mm. on it like that's that's alarming on so many different fronts yeah I mean it's as strong and as bold as you can get from the public very much so total and I think the word that the Sunday Independent uses the public's confidence in hospitals shattered I think shattered is a great word mm. because that's exactly what it illustrates it just shows that people have absolutely no confidence in the A&E departments in our hospitals um, and, and that's like that's not if, if you're reading headlines in the papers that say if you go to hospital, you face a 14-hour wait. I mean, why would you go to a and I think the story in the Mail on Sunday is interesting as well. You know, 50 people unnecessarily dying per week, 51 people um, mm. as a result of these unnecessary delays. You know, and, and the reality is that I think, Gavin, on your show, if you think back for the past couple of years, ever since you've had it on the Sunday, you've probably, at this time of year, you're probably talking about health, yeah. aren't you? This is this is my, my fourth January doing this, and yeah. I suspect this is a pretty common theme in the first week of January, but um, never to the extent that mm. it's been. And what's also striking is, you know, we regularly talk on this programme about the, the findings from these Ireland Thinks polls where people are asked to name the two issues that they think are the most compelling that a government needs to deal with, mm. and that the hospital's crisis has now surged from being something in the 20 or 30% region last month to now being a top priority for 56% of people. Mm. It shows how much people are, are exercised by what's going on this week or the start of every January. Does it also suggest that people are maybe a little bit fickle? That if it wasn't one of their top two concerns a month ago mm-hmm. and now it is... Well, it's the same story that we talk about every single winter, isn't it? And it's overcrowding. It's waiting for an appointment. It's, you know, elective surgeries being cancelled. Um, I think Tony O'Brien in the Business Post, he makes interesting points. He's saying that the Chief Medical Officer, Brita Smith, she was kind of left whistling in the wind when sending warnings about COVID. And he also compares Ireland to other countries. He says, look, Austria, for example, much better system. You need a negative COVID test to go into hospital and masks on public transport or 100% compliance. If you live in Vienna, you can avail of five free PCR tests. And of course, in Ireland, we are putting up the VAT on, yeah. on, on the prices on our antigen tests um, as of the start of this year. Look, I think when it comes to health, there's a, a certain number of factors at play. First of all, it's the politics side of it. Government, successive government, successive ministers for health, Taoiseach's have Taoiseach have failed on it. Like, mm. let's just be very clear about it. Then you're saying, OK, we have this five billion now of extra cash. Do we put that into the health service? 
Like, is money even the problem? It doesn't really seem to be because Stephen Donnie's coming out and saying, well, the HSC haven't met their recruitment targets. Um, He's sort of putting, putting the blame on, you know, consultants could be working a little bit longer. Um, management. Is management the key issue? If you look at Waterford Hospital, for example, you know, their usual number of people on trolleys is zero. zero. Yeah, in fact, yeah. I'm, just, I'm looking at the most the latest figures again this morning. There's only a couple of hospitals around the country that didn't have any patients at all mm. uh, in their emergency departments on trolleys and Waterford, yet again, is one of them. And you'd be going back quite a bit. The HSE publishes their figures three times a day. You'd mm-hmm. be going back quite a bit to find any time when Waterford yeah. recorded itself as having anybody on trolleys. And their management have been praised for they took action, I think, even before HSE sounded the alarm. They mm. said, OK, we know this winter's going to be tough for us. We have COVID, we have RSV, we have flu. We're going to put in those contingency measures now. So you have politics, you've got management, you've got the HSC, you've got money at play. And it seems to be a blame game of one crowd saying, well, it's their, that person's fault and it's that mm. person's fault. And, you know, every single year we're left in the same position. We're talking about the same story every single yeah, one, yeah. one thing I find very striking about this, Aoife, is that another finding from this Ireland Thinks poll in the Sunday Independent, which was taken on Thursday and Friday of this week, uh, people are asked as what they see as the biggest reason for record overcrowding. Um, 9%, 8% of people say it's insufficient state funding. 61% of people say that it's poor management of that funding by the HSE and or by hospital groups. So to a certain degree, people aren't really holding the government or Stephen Donnelly responsible for this. They see it as being yeah. a HSE problem. Yeah, I find that interesting. And I think talking to people I know who would work within the HSE, I don't know if they disagree with that. You know what I mean? And mm. like there is enough coverage and enough knowledge about how things work within the HSE um, that would indicate that people why people would, would hold that opinion and I do think it's interesting though because you have those issues going on the, the kind of legacy issues you know with the HSE in terms of um, how, it, how it runs and the kind of financial way it runs and and kind of staff it runs but then you also have the political element that Gabby was talking about there where like I saw a video on, on Instagram the other day of successive health ministers each of them yeah. coming out and mm. like when you've been in journalism this must stop like mm. we've both been in journalism yes. like nearly I mean, 15 years or whatever you're so used to every length, every couple of years you mm-hmm. have you know the health minister comes out and says this is terrible people shouldn't be on trolleys we're going to do something about it we need to tackle this now like you had Mary Harney tackling it you had James Riley tackling it you had Leo Radker tackling it you know you have all of the mm. ministers coming out and they're going to do it and they're the people that ultimately do have power to at least try and do something now you see Stephen Donnelly having his chats with the HSC trying to do things like getting consultants to maybe work on the weekend that might maybe mm. get people to actually well, c- move c- off the bed. Consultants like, will tell you that they already work weekends anyway which then maybe begs a question as to why this weekend is any different to any other. The it numbers would, seem yeah. to be down this weekend. It would but at the same time anybody who's been in hospital will know that nothing happens in the weekends really beyond them caring for the patients and the sense of decisions can't be made except between Monday and Friday to actually get people off beds or kind of change things around. So it it's, it's kind of seems like this like futile kind of Sisyphean thing of like dealing with the trolley issue dealing with the hostel mm. issue and yet the, that barrels back on us time and time again something has to change I mean you know there is money there but is there will there are there legacy issues kind of like what you're talking there about, Gabby about how some hospitals are really good at dealing with it and some aren't mm. is there a sense in some places where well this is just a situation where it's always bad for us our emergency department is always going to have issues in, in UHL for example there, are they always going to have issues because mm. there's only one emergency department for what three different counties yeah. in that area so like there's all of these like this confluence of factors but there's been such an ongoing problem 
and knowledge that it was going to get worse this year with RSV, with COVID, with the flu, that you have to ask yourself, why is nobody actually making the big difficult yeah. decisions to actually try and fix this? Uh, I saw one medic um, saying on Twitter as well, they were sharing a, some, some reporting from yesterday and they pointed out that one thing that Waterford is able to do, which maybe other facilities could think about, is that Waterford has a relationship with a local nursing home. So if there is a need to expedite getting people out of beds into yeah. post-hospital care, that they've got a relationship there which would then free up resources that can then be used by other people coming into the mm-hmm. emergency department. Um, I want to read a couple of small extracts from page six of the Sunday Independent. There's two small uh, quotes or testimonies from people who've been working uh, on the front lines in the last couple of days. Um, a nurse in an emergency department in Dublin says the following. Obviously, they're anonymous for, for understandable reasons. Um, they said to the Sunday Independent, on Tuesday, there were 15 or 17 people on trolleys. There are delays in the waiting room and people are frustrated waiting to be seen. There are delays getting into the cubicle. Before Christmas, the longest wait in the department was a woman who waited five days on a trolley. There were 20 to 24 hour waits in the waiting room to come in and then you could be waiting another four or five hours sitting in the cubicle waiting to be seen. The staff are under pressure, doctors and nurses. There are delays the whole way through the system. Every day we are down nurses. We don't have the staff to cope with the sheer volume of people coming through. There are not enough beds. That's problem number one. COVID is causing complications. Politicians are not helping me in my everyday job. They are not helping me to screen patients through the system and they are certainly not helping any patient on a trolley or waiting in a waiting room. This person, Gabby, seems to be putting the blame squarely at the feet of politicians and yet the public don't think that the politicians are the problem, which kind of then makes you wonder who ultimately is responsible and and is it maybe Hmm. that lamentable perfect storm that people keep talking about? Yeah, well, but but we are seeing this perfect storm every single December and January. Mm. So regular weather event. How come every 11 months we're seeing this perfect storm? Um, And I think it's just not good that the public don't really seem to blame politicians because, I mean, ultimately, if you're going to, and I think Aoife is right in saying that, like who ultimately is responsible for reforming the health service? Like Mm. it is our elected representatives. It is the Minister for Health. Yes, of course, if had the pandemic but even long before the pandemic we saw um, rising numbers of people on trolleys and at the heart of this while we have these conversations here in, in, in radio studios and while politicians come out and talk on airwaves about it like there's people that are in excruciating pain waiting to be seen there's doctors there's nurses there's porters that are totally run off their feet you know working not just their own shifts and then taking the Saturday to go golfing. Like they're working overtime, they're working triple shifts and they're totally burnt out and exhausted. And they seem to see no end of it, you know? Yeah, 260 people according to the HSE's own figures on trolleys in emergency departments this morning. That's 260, uh, 60 of whom were there for over 24 hours. Um, That is nonetheless, although it's quite a high number and certainly quite a high number over there, over 24 hours, uh, still down quite a bit on the comparable 8am checks uh, other days uh, from the last couple of days. We'll be talking to um, Alan Malone about all of this a little after 12 o'clock. Um, folks, if it's the HSE's fault, how come some hospitals like Waterford are doing just fine? That's from Lara in Dublin. Well, again, there's circumstantial things like, for example, they've expedited a protocol where they'll move people to other wards rather than having them um, sitting in their emergency departments and, like I said, the relationship that they have um, with um, local nursing homes as well. Um, Ronan texts in to say that I find the continual references to Waterford zero trolleys to be very annoying. It's surely down to the population versus the amount of beds. Has anyone done analysis on this to confirm that it's great management? Hopefully it is, uh, but it is unlikely. That's from Ronan. Um, there has been a few named managers who have been singled out for praise in some uh, newspaper critiques over the weekend, so I think there maybe could be a little bit of both. Maybe they do have population factors in their favour, but you know that there are other management points as well. Someone else says, to your point about fickle public opinion, since we don't have elections at this time of year, do you think health will ever be the main issue at election time? The last three general mm. elections have all taken place in February's. 
Uh, so I I don't yeah. know if hospital stuff is is that much behind people's thinking because uh, 20, 2011, 16 and twenty the public went to the polls each time in February. Uh, someone else says from undergraduate level medicine it creates a culture of hierarchy and deference so that the service only works as well as the senior consultants uh, wanted to work. That is from someone else who's texting at the five three one zero six. Do keep your texts coming. Um, there's a poll. Uh, another question in this poll is whether Stephen Donnelly is right to ask medical consultants to be rostered to work in public hospitals at weekends as part of a new contract. 67% say yes. 20% of people say no. And 13% yeah. are unsure. I'm a little surprised at that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it seems like a logical decision to make. But then again, you don't know what the knock-on effects of it might be. As much as I was going on about it, it should be something that they should do about five yeah. minutes ago. But like, um, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it makes sense to try and get the decision, some of the major decision makers within the hospital ward to be present, to be able to make decisions um, at the weekends and to kind of muck in yeah. right now. It's, I mean, they're paid a lot of money because they do really, they do really, you know, serious jobs um, and mm, everybody else in the hospital works extremely hard. So that's, that's not being questioned. But um, if that, if that was something that would engender a feeling of um, kind of bitterness or annoyance or like how long do we have to do this work because it actually means my job is more difficult and I can't make decisions properly and if it has a negative knock-on effect on their work then I can see why people would say no or might be unsure. Mm. But I mean I can also see why people overwhelmingly feel like it's a good thing and there can be an attitude um, around consultants where people can have a negative attitude towards them even though they do um, an important job. So some people might feel that too where they might not know the, the ins and outs of of the stress and pressure of, mm. of that role um, but it also can come down to the hierarchical thing too Sure uh, but then Gabby there's the point that if uh, people think that the HSE's poor management or its inability to staff these things if that's what's to blame then ultimately the HSE is sort of reliant on Ireland's medical schools and the work of the Department of Higher Education and the Department of Health to, to make sure that there are enough qualified doctors and nurses mm. and, and special specialties coming through and that in its own way then reflects back in the government if it's not able to make sure that people are coming through those courses quickly enough or if they're not incentivised to stay in the country after they graduate. Yeah, I was going to make the point, it's all very well graduating and being educated here in Ireland. It's no use to us if you go off to Australia or, mm. or other it's countries. It's so negative that you can't stay. Yeah, yeah. and mm. and you don't, want, you don't want to stay in Ireland, be it money, be it hours and, and, and you decide to go abroad. Look, I think really in another commentary that I've seen the past you know week or so, it's it's not it's like housing. It's a serious problem that we have in Ireland, and successive governments are are not going to tackle it. I, I was talking to somebody who was who's quite senior in the health service, and they were making the point that, look, it, you have a minister for health for four years, and they have a plan, and then that minister's gone, yeah, and a new minister comes in, yeah. and they say, I'm going to solve all these problems, and then they have a new plan, mm. and then the HSC are like, okay, never new minister again, and mm. then you might have a new minister maybe two or three years later, mm. and so well, you have the all these different care plans. was that you weren't going to have different plans that you might have different ministers, but they'd still mm. have the same blueprint, and but we're five and a half years into that, and we don't seem to be getting that. <laughs> we're seeing like a few months ago, we're seeing reports about board members resigning, none of it being implemented, mm. government being accused of not taking it seriously. So, like, what is the story with Slanchi Care, and like, mm. is it even being taken seriously by this government? Uh, here's a, a quite a, a prescient text. Uh, there is nowhere for people to go from hospitals at the weekend. Every consultant can discharge patients on Saturday and Sunday, but there's no GPs, there's no public health nurses, no community care teams. Nursing homes won't take admissions at the weekends. There's no dressing clinics. Stop saying work at the weekend will work unless it also applies to non-hospital services too, says that yeah. texter, which is a, a pretty good point. Definitely. Um, Bill wants us to point out that there's no mention to the fact that the HSE is one of the highest funded public health systems in Europe. And yet we clearly don't get the outcomes. Paul in Blackrock says, not trying to give Stephen Donnelly or the government and out 
But the people responsible for delivering health in this country are the HSE and in particular the CEO, COO, the other significant number management team. I know what would happen to people in similar leadership roles in private companies if they delivered to this continually dreadful performance. Why are they not being called out, put on air daily to explain what their strategy is, how they'll resolve it and when? asks Paul. Uh, well, we did invite the HSE to offer somebody for interview this afternoon. None of them were available to do so. I presume you have to strike a balance eventually where they need to spend some time on the airwaves talking about what they're going to do, but they also need to spend time actually managing. And if yeah. you spent all day actually being doing ca- it. accountable to the media, then you'd never actually get anything done. Um, and surely uh, all the medical staff on holidays and childcare duties is a large contribution, says Rose. Uh, medicine shouldn't be nine to five, Monday to Friday at any stage, but during Christmas it is just a little bit more ridiculous, which is maybe a point that we'll take up uh, when we are talking to um, Alan Irvine from the Hospital Consultants Association uh, a little bit later in the programme. Uh, lots more to discuss in the papers with Gabia and Aoife, which we'll get to just after this. Don't go away. 11.28 on the record this Sunday morning. Gavin Riley with you till one o'clock on News Talk. Still joined in studio by Aoife Barry and Gabby Agatha And also now joined by Killian Woods, senior business reporter from the Business Post, who has uh, quite a fascinating front page story today on the Business Post. People might remember if they were listening to us last week on New Year's Day, that Killian had quite a fascinating story about how the LDA, despite being set up four years ago, over four years ago, with one and a quarter billion euro to develop housing on public lands, had yet to actually develop any public housing. He's got something of a follow-up today which says that the state is paying up to €138,000 more to build a home on public lands than other European state builders would do on their public lands. And Killian, as I said, is with us uh, on the line now. Um, Killian, do we have any straightforward explanation as to why it would cost so much more to build in Ireland the public lands than it would in comparable cities around the, Europe? And that's a pretty brief answer to that, Gavin. Thanks for having me on. And the answer is no. I think that's where this this report that was provided to the Business Post and we've obtained is kind of meets a dead end and probably is where it, what, it doesn't seem to have been a follow-up into addressing why it costs much more for the Irish state or this state organisations to build affordable housing. And the fact that it hasn't even been shared beyond the organisation as well, considering that we're kind of told a lot by politicians, a lot by different people involved in housing, that we're all in it together, all the approved housing bodies, the councils, the Land Development Agency, Department of Housing. You know, we've Leave Riker as well saying at the end of last year, they're going to kind of have a united government approach. And that's what Housing for All is meant to be as well, united government approach. And then there's these key bits of information that are kind of showing how tough it is to build affordable housing in Ireland. And it's kind of getting siloed in this state mm. organisation. Well, well, I'll come back then to maybe some of the contributing costs in a second. But just because you mentioned this kind of siloed thinking, that the report that you've obtained uh, was labelled by the LDA as being private and confidential and not to be shared outside the LDA. Uh, Is there any explanation as to why the LDA would commission something like this which would highlight higher costs and which might be something for the government to follow up on but then not pass it on? Unfortunately, it's the same answer. The, the, I'm at a dead end trying to answer that question as well. The, like the, when I was asking the LDA about why this sort of report was commissioned and why, and which is kind of an obvious answer to that, is obviously they need to work out how much it costs to build housing in Ireland and also looking to benchmark themselves against other kind of similar state deliverers in, in, in mainland Europe. They said, look, this is exactly what we would do. We would have an internal reports that we would do that would show, you know, try, try to see if we are on the right track, if we're not spending too much on, on this. And then the next question is, why wasn't that shared beyond the organisation? And that this was deemed commercial sensitive information that shouldn't have gone beyond beyond the state. And like that's because it is difficult information that they've actually got their hands on. And it was probably shared with them very in good faith for, by other state deliverers that it wouldn't go 
into the public domain at least, but the fact that it hasn't gone even to the Minister for Housing to show, or even Department of Housing, to show that this is how much it actually is costing, going to cost the organisation to deliver, is, you know, it's, it raises questions about why. Yeah, well, it is pretty striking that you might have, you know, for example, the Department of Housing drawing up a budget for the LDA based on the expectation that it could deliver X number of housing units, but if the LDA knows how much it's going to cost and it doesn't tally with the department's own figures, you might question as to why that hasn't been passed on. Um, how cheaply can other comparable European countries deliver public housing versus us well listen so the, the the way the report was done was put it in square meters which is then which then means it's, it's hard to maybe boil that down into maybe into real figures for people because people understand housing not by how much square meter it's bought by they you know they spend a bulk sum on a house so if you look at ireland and they're all in development costs for for building housing and based on the report they say it's two hundred ninety-two thousand, which it sounds quite good because but that's obviously good because there's a lot of other costs stripped out of there like obviously the land cost which wouldn't be what the lda wouldn't have to pay mm. so when they were looking at other comparators they were seeing that trying trying to go like for like with other state organizations that are delivering and they roughly were you know the the, the lowest figure was 138,000 below that and that guy probably and so but you know you know yeah. i think it was like 40 price so if you could yeah, deliver it, a two bed apartment in yes. nice for 292 and somebody else could do it for 292 minus 138 which is 154,000 that's that's a it, massive gulf it is, and it was there was a there was a range in there. Obviously, now, there was another German delivery who was doing it for twenty three thousand um, less expensive than the LDA. So there was that in in that range of twenty three to one hundred thirty eight thousand cheaper to build. And, and again, the, the key of this is we're not comparing, let's say, uh, apartment block in Paris with a what what the LDA's site was in Nice that yeah. they are looking to compare compare to. We're, they are comparing like for like developments in in city city not, not quite like not exactly like nice there's nowhere like nice obviously in the world but they're looking at like the likes of towns in france in belgium and in germany that would have very similar kind of apartment developments going on there and how much it would cost so that's why i think this most that's the most relevant thing of this this piece of research is it's really comparing like what like because we have a lot of reports out there about what it costs to build housing in ireland but it's a bulk sum it's what costs in dublin and galway and cork and leash and it, in the middle there is somewhere really what what, what it should cost to build rather than it's not it's not going to cost the same to build apartments and leash the cost mm. in Dublin. So I think this is why it's really important comparing like for like and showing that the LDA is is, is it getting um, value for money or do or is that the best it can do? Is this the price we have to pay to solve the housing crisis? But the fact that it's not been, it doesn't seem to have been interrogated any further is quite worrying. Yeah, um, I like the uh, the accidental tourist slogan that you've just coined for NACE, that there's nowhere like NACE in the world. Um, you, you, you do mention by the by, you say that there, there was no... Um, you know, comprehensive explanations to why Ireland is so much dearer. But you have singled out in, in your piece in the Business Post today um, that land works, uh, work on the likes of uh, footpaths and roads, are quite a bit more expensive in Ireland than they are anywhere else. That, that's the one that did jump out to me as well. And they didn't have exact, not every development they looked at was able to provide that. But that, that they, yeah, they were looking at 438 euro per square meter to build like the kind of the basic foot uh, the, the basic that goes around the state the basic that goes around the apartment block mm. that was what it cost the foot the um, footpaths and the basic landmark around landscaping whereas it was the range for other countries like 33 euro to 101 euro per square meter in france and 68 euro per square meter in belgium like that's significantly cheaper and it would uh, across the development really add up if you're building like tens of thousands of homes when you're paying you know nearly four times more than four times the amount to build footpaths like, that's another thing it's all adding in and even talking to other people during the week it's just, there, there's other costs going in there as well that are not necessarily really identified in these reports which which is just like the basic cost of doors and stuff like that that can go up to 3,000 euro in social housing developments which seems like a lot I, I've never bought a door in my life but it seems like a lot to pay for a door and that was what was quoted to me that there is cheaper alternatives out there that we maybe need to look at if we're trying to be cost efficient 
Um, I didn't think that the question mark of uh, giving people their own front door would be quite so literally interpreted, but I suppose that's that's the way we are right now. Uh, Killian Woods, thanks for joining us this morning to discuss that report. A larger spread uh, inside the Business Post as well today, uh, where Killian is talking about some of the practices of the LDA. Uh, Killian Woods, a senior business reporter uh, with the Business Post, which brings us up to um, 11.35. Still a couple of texts and tweets coming in about the hospital situation. One texter says that they would meet consultants in the corridors at night on their supposed time off, buried in the 8 to 10 box files that they were carrying. I would ask them, aren't you off? To which they'd reply, this is time off. It's very simple, says this texter. Our problem lies with the managers of the HSE. And Tom says that he owns a medical recruitment company who specialises in primary care. Uh, This business of the HSE and government promising things that will be fixed by additional staff is rubbish. There are no additional staff and the problem is the spike in admissions. There's no fix to this. You can't account for it. One of the problems is triage and triaging. Too many patients attend and should not uh, do not need to attend a GP out of hours and the A&E that do attend. Attention needs to be focused on somewhat on excellent triaging which would alleviate the system somewhat he says the private public health system is so multifaceted and there's lots of things to fix but accountability and competence within non-clinical staff is very poor and laughable at best in a majority of cases says Tom uh, thank you for that text Tom 53106 uh, for your thoughts on that um, as I said Aoife Barry and Gabby Gadavitskita still with me in studio um, I'm, I'm really struck I, I don't mean to, to single out a single thing, Aoife, as a fix for the housing crisis. But the idea that you'd pay three grand for a door. <laughs> well, I did, I did look in before to getting the door I have in my house um, <laughs> fixed and it was about three grand. And that was to get the whole thing done up and everything. So there've got to be cheaper options if you're going to be building an affordable home. Do you know what I mean? That is yeah. like when you're when you're investing a lot. I didn't get the door. Uh, just, just like to clarify, do not spend three grand on a door. Um, but yeah, I but mean, if you're like, like, talking about if it did cost, hypothetically, so I know that there's there's always, you know, different cost of land. And by the way, someone has texted in to say, I guess the LDA has now discovered that the cost of land is not the problem with building in Ireland, uh, mm-hmm. which of course is, is interesting given that it owns the land. But that if you're talking about you know, a two-bed apartment in Nace that might cost 292000 all in to build. Mm. And if three grand of that is literally the entrance to the building, like yeah. it just it seems like a really disproportionate amount. I know it might be a very superficial thing to focus on, but if, if it's a, it's a useful comparator that it's right? one thing that costs so much in Ireland and not yeah. anywhere else, it really is remarkable. It's indicative of something um, and it's maybe indicative of like the like accepted cost of certain things when it comes to construction in Ireland and maybe there are accepted amounts that you're supposed to pay if you're constructing social housing that actually if you got someone to think outside the box a little bit about it might Mm. actually be able to find an alternative but again I mean like I'm not a developer I've never built a house so I'm just talking out of my own experience here but it does seem when you look at the numbers I mean listening to Killian there talking about his story and reading reading the story as well in the, in the business post myself and Gabby were like sorry what are the reasons mm. why these costs are like we couldn't figure out there was no answer to to it um, and the fact they didn't do the follow up uh, any follow up analysis we don't know yeah. so all of these question marks leads you to really wonder surely there's some solution there that somebody who knows a lot more could be coming up with or are people benefiting from these things being very expensive yeah. I'm uh, sure they are someone else has texted in and said the big reason why costs are so high in Ireland is that labour rates are much higher in Ireland building regular are more onerous, higher quality apartments and higher basement requirements uh, for apartment blocks, says that texter, um, which is, um, and someone else again pointing out that clearly the cost of land isn't a problem, which interestingly, just by the by, uh, might pose a problem for one of Sinn Féin's proposed ideas because Sinn Féin have continually talked about um, selling people a home but st- having the state still owning the land that it's on. But if it still costs €292,000 to build the apartment block in the first place, then that's uh, an interesting thing. One thing which strikes me, Gabby, and we were talking in part one about the arm's length relationship between the HSE and the Department of Health and whether one can really manage the other. 
is y- you may possibly have a- an arrangement developing here and there where the LDA four and a half years up mm. if it is commissioning this sort of sensitive information about how much it costs to build a home and it's not sharing that back mm. with the Department of Housing I'm sure they've got their reasons but it does kind of then have another situation where the entity responsible for housing people is operating at this kind of arm's length unaccountability to the government itself and that you're just copying what the HSE has done in another area. Yeah, not really sort of being fully transparent. Now, the LDR saying it's a draft report. Um, so, look, perhaps those figures, you know, maybe they could argue that those figures are not very exact. But look, they're there and the report was put together so they weren't pulled out of thin air. There is truth behind them. Um, just just to respond to that texter saying the construction or the cost of labour um, yeah. is sort of one of those issues that that's probably why it's so expensive. Actually, the report actually includes, or Killian mm. Wood's story includes that actually that is not the issue and also labour costs not the main driver and the disparity in construction costs with Ireland having one of the lowest from the surveyed countries. Um, If you speak to Rory Hearn, for example, he makes this argument for a state developer and the LDA it's supposed know, to be the state developer. It's supposed to be the state yeah. developer. Surely, definitely, uh, you know, Fianna Gael's version of it from when uh, Leo Varadkar launched it a couple of four years ago when he was Taoiseach. Um, but, you know, even to see that it's not building any homes by itself, the homes that it has delivered have been built by developers. So it's not really physically going off and, and, and building the land. We saw, I think, its chairman sort of resign, I think, in 2021 as well. So I think it's interesting that it's there's obviously challenges there, but I think it needs to be transparent and share this, mm. whatever data, whatever concerns they have with the Department of Housing, with the housing minister. So the Dara Ryan can say, right, what is it that you need? Do you need more money? Why are you spending all this? extra money in building affordable homes and then that's where we arrive at the situation where we have so-called affordable homes that aren't really affordable at all yeah. and if you look at again I keep banging on about building apartments building apartments is extremely expensive and it's very difficult to have if you're spending so much on actually getting the thing built like no surprise the end product is so expensive for the mm. purchaser uh, Buried in, inside page 2 in, in Killian Wood's piece um, the LDA's overview of building costs was completed six months before the Department of Housing commissioned its own research project into construction costs in September 2021, which, which maybe is a reason why the report ought to have been shared from one body to the other. Um, a spokesman for the LDA responding to queries from the Business Post says the report was an exercise to gain greater insights into the cost of residential construction in Ireland as compared to other European jurisdictions. The LDA continually researches ways to reduce costs and to design its schemes to result in quali- quality affordable housing and value for money for the state. He added that the report was marked not to be shared outside because it contained potential price information regarding a specific project which is currently in a tender process which could have been deemed confidential or market sensitive information um, which is fair enough Aoife but you think that the government could still have benefited from having that like if, yeah. if, if for example you're worried about market sensitive information you can hand that over to the department and then if somebody puts in an FOI request for example you can redact, you redact that information it, yeah. like that, that's what's commonplace and we yeah. know that is it seems really strange. Um, I don't really understand it because at the end of the day, if you're supposed to be all working towards the, the kind of common goal, which is boosting construction of homes in Ireland, which is an ongoing huge issue, then if you have information that might help towards making that easier or towards helping people uh, do that better or helping the department to make better decisions, then why not share the info, especially when you know, you've been set up by the government? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I don't understand that. And I, I always find it interesting looking back. I know it's slightly different, but looking back at, say, nearly 100 years ago in Ireland when you had major issues with tenement living in the old Georgian buildings mm. in the city in Dublin particularly and you had debts caused by them collapsing and at the time the corporations you know their job was to build new housing and because of that we got kind 
kind of suburbanisation and we had this this will to ensure that the people living in Dublin city um, or in Dublin were were housed and that they weren't living in these situations where they were living in tenements in the mm. city centre on Fenian Street and places like that where they were collapsing. And it's interesting to look back then where the will was to try and ensure people were, were homed and it was happening and it was happening at a very fast rate and yes, there it wasn't perfect and by any means and people were probably very overworked. But now you get to this point where it's so slow and it doesn't feel like the same will is there to try and get some sort of a solution to ensuring people are housed. And it's, I mean, look, comparing 1930s Ireland to 2020s maybe yeah. is a bit of a fancy in some yeah. ways. But it is interesting, I think, to see the will but having th- changed and the, the impact change. But even mm. if you compare the Celtic Tiger years when we were building 50,000 houses a year, I mean, now we're seeing that a lot of those apartments once again have defects yeah. mm. poorly defects, built exactly. yeah. and there are a lot of them are unsafe for people so th- like there doesn't seem to be a middle ground and mm. I think if you compare Ireland to other European countries mm. um, you know I am from Lithuania and I spent Christmas there and my parents live in an apartment um, that was built in the late 90s like it's lovely and warm and yeah. there's not a problem with it. Okay, the lift is old in the hall, it probably needs a little bit of TLC, but you know, it's not there's there is no those structural defects just aren't there. Because it's mm. built for people to live in as homes for the rest yeah, of their lives. Yeah. Not so just in Ireland we're like, oh, apartments, yeah. you know, like just w- throw up this block of uh, apartments yeah. so make a rake of money. Developer makes it. money, exactly. Yeah. It's it's a really it's not yeah. a, a community or person focused uh, approach. I am <laughs> always reminded, by the way, that when we did build fifty or sixty thousand units a year, that the cost of housing did not come down. It's not yeah. as if housing became cheaper because it was more plentiful during those yeah, days if exactly. anything it went you, up quite a bit um, yeah. it is worth the reason why I did read out that extensive quote from a spokesperson for the LDA by the way where they said that they continually research ways to reduce costs and to design its schemes to result in quality affordable homes and value for money for the state the reason I read that is because a couple of um, paragraphs previous Killian Woods reports that sources with knowledge of the LDA said that no further analysis was conducted as to why the agency's costs are significantly higher or what could be done to reduce those costs. Maybe not directly on foot of, maybe they just do other um, parallel research instead. Mm. Um, Aoife will be reassured to know that she is not the only person getting stung for high quotes for doors. Um, we, changed the, we changed the door of our house a few weeks ago, says a texter. Just the door and frame, no glass around the sides. We shopped around and in the end we were delighted to get it for €2,450. Easily the best price we found is that person Um, and Jim wants to know uh, how much of the raw materials for construction are manufactured in Ireland compared to other countries maybe that is a point maybe we do have to um, pay a lot for Mm -hmm. shipping to get raw materials in and out and certainly there has been uh, building inflation Uh, in relation to housing says Maria I can't understand why the government doesn't consider modular housing more it's a great way of providing a lot of housing while being built uh, more in control of cost Uh, says Maria it is something which is you know we know it's been looked at previously and didn't turn out to be uh, the panacea that people thought it might be but it's being revisited again right now to um, try and house some Ukrainian refugees at some state sites uh, and on the, uh, the healthcare issue uh, Pat says why are GPs not a seven day a week business uh, I know it's a numbers issue at present but how many people go to A&E the weekend because GPs practices are all closed so the answer to that is well there are local dock and call services which are effectively GPs acting in coalition uh, to cover each other but if there aren't enough GPs right now to work five days a week then try getting them to work seven days a week they, they need their leisure too uh, it is 11.46 there's a few other bits and pieces that I want to get to in the newspapers which we'll get to with Ifa and Gabia after we take this quick break don't go away 11.49 on the record Gavin Riley with you this Sunday morning on News Talk 53106 the number for your text still join in studio going through the Sunday newspapers by Aoife Barry from the journal.ie and Gabby Gadafitskita from the Irish Independent uh, we were going to talk and we will in a few minutes about um, Prince Harry and whether he knows really what he's at at this stage which uh, not to give you too much of a spoiler of the tone that we'll be discussing but uh, <laughs> that is probably our mutual take on it but before we do get to that 
I asked during the ad break uh, to Aoife and Gabby, was there anything else in the papers uh, that jumped out that they really wanted to discuss? And they both singled on the same piece uh, in the Business Post, as it happens again uh, by Killian Woods. It's about um, co-living in Dublin, that very contentious idea that Dara O'Brien tried to snuff out, but any of the ones which already had planning permission had to be allowed to go ahead anyway. Uh, and one uh, co-living development uh, built, built by Bartra on Iblana Avenue in Dunleary in South County, Dublin, uh, where when they were lodging their planning permission, uh, they told people that it would cost between between 1,083 and €1,300 a month to live in a facility like that. Now it turns out that they're advertising those uh, living suites for €1,880 a month. That is €797 more uh, than some of the cheapest prices that were being quoted at the time. And Gabby, you thought that there might have been some merit in a development like this if it was actually being filled for the prices that they'd originally said? Yeah, look, let me put this point across. You know, €1,000 up to €1,300 a month on rent is very expensive. And that's like, let me be very clear about that. (laughs) But, you know, there there are, I suppose, a section of society that, you know, professionals that maybe come to Ireland they're working in the tech sector if they still have their jobs they may be making a little bit of money maybe they don't, they don't really have any friends here and they're more than happy to live in calling developments they want their homes to be in turnkey condition they don't want to be going off shopping for furniture or anything like that and they're happy to spend that money now any money that you pay on rent of course if you pay it for two years it's a massive amount of money and you don't really get anything at the end of it but I think being asked to pay nearly two grand a month for on rent for one person mm. is extremely expensive. Which makes you wonder then whether they'll ultimately be able to fill those places or, or will they mm. fill them sure, simply out of necessity because people have nowhere else to go. Particularly if you're younger and single and you don't have a set of housemates or you're not in a relationship and you've not got anyone else to live with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or will they leave them lying empty to keep their value high? I mean, I guess it remains to be seen. Look, the reality is that a lot of people are desperate to, for somewhere to live and especially if you have that eviction looming for you be it in March or April or uh, May or June and when there's a stagger cut off point like if if you're very desperate you might even pay two grand a month just to have somewhere to literally live Mm. Uh, Aoife you weren't so convinced about the merits of co-living to begin with Yeah I think the thing about co-living is you'd say one thing of co-living was part of a suite of options that developers were um, creating in terms of housing in Ireland but there was a phase where loads of co-living was being planned by developers there was I remember at the time reporting on there was some I can't remember the numbers now but it was it was really interesting, remarkable, and that's why you saw politicians speaking out against it, and that's why you saw eventually um, the decision made to basically ban ban co living, um, and it basically showed that the developers were focused on this cheaper way of building um, accommodation that they could put more people into, charge high amounts of rents because they presume that a certain proportion of the population who earn a lot of money will want to live there for some reason for a short period of time. And then once that was stopped, they moved on to build to rent. Yeah. So, which again is another way of getting people into um, more kind of short-term accommodation. So that might be fine if that was a certain part of that suite, but you don't have a suite of options. Mm. Instead, they're becoming the norm. Um, and I think that's the problematic thing. And the idea as well of like, who can afford to spend €1,800 Euro a month? Anybody I know who earns enough money to spend that, who works in anywhere tangentially to a finance or tech, yeah. is not wanting to live mm. in co-living. No. They are adults who want to live in their own apartment mm. or they want to live in their own space mm. and they, they don't necessarily yeah. buy into the bells and whistles. Yeah, and, and oftentimes like you could, I mean, it, it's a stretch for a lot of people, but oftentimes you could get a, a one bedroom apartment for two two grand a month or not yeah. much more so you would probably rather do that than pay 1880 
and still have to share a kitchen exactly, with other people. Exactly, because it's so much money. I can't imagine spending that amount of money, you know, myself to be able to actually live in a place like that. And, you know, again, it's great to have options. Everybody should have as many options as they want. There's plenty of people who are in over 100 grand a year and can spend mm. that. But it's just kind of ridiculous when you see that that, that yeah. being the main way at one stage of mm. them trying to get new housing in Ireland. And it is pointed out that when Barter applied for planning permission to build this shared shared living units, as they're formerly called, and the documentation that they put in said that they were going to cost between uh, 1083 and 1300 a month, which was more affordable than a new build to rent apartment, which would be between 1200 and 1850. And as it seems like it's mm. much cheaper now yeah. uh, to go into to co-living than it would be to simply live in a, in a one bed apartment, mm-hmm. if of course you can find them. Um, someone called Willy Wonka on Twitter says, modular housing <laughs> is old hat. Why aren't we constructing 3D printed homes? They'd be up in jig time. Is it because we're backwards in Ireland? I actually think there's a, I think if I remember rightly, there is a 3D element uh, to what is being proposed for the housing for Ukrainian refugees and part of why it might be quicker for them to do is that it, because if it's been done on state land that the state can do some of the kit out while it's still going through the planning process and that you can do certain things simultaneously that you couldn't do if it was being done privately. Um, I did say we would briefly discuss um, the the Harry interview and interviews and book um, which is being aired tonight on, on ITV1 and in Ireland on Virgin Media 1 at 9 o'clock. Um, quite a lot across the papers about it. Gabby, any thoughts? Yeah, I think Liam Collins has a great piece in the Sindo about how the Harry and William uh, drama would doesn't really hold a candle when it comes to Irish family yeah. rivalries. Of course, we've heard a fair share of, of you know family tragedies, really, where you see you know siblings that are murdering their parents or other siblings over land. But this is also played out in the courts. So you know, Liam brings up a good few examples. He brings up Frank Dunn, for example, the co-chairman of Dunn Stores. Um, you know, there was a really quite a bitter internal public struggle <clears throat> within that family over the retail of the over the control of the retail empire. He says one of the saddest experiences I had was sitting in a courtroom watching the elderly Comans, Pat and Mary, founders of the noted pub in Rathgar in Dublin. Ash war with five of their six sons over control of the business. We have lost everything we valued. We have lost our fatherhood and our motherhood, Mary Coleman told the court mm. in a quiet and determined voice. So, look, this is great. I suppose the, the royals, you know, we know they sell papers. I think I actually did watch the documentaries on Netflix over Christmas. Mm. It got very boring at one point. And yeah, I said, you know, you kind of wonder oh, that Harry if, if they had this much, this much dirt <clears throat> uh, to dish out, then why did they wait for TV interviews or for the book to do it? Or, or did, they, did they nearly <laughs> yeah. have to ration their... Their scandals but or like, their bombshells. If you, to try compare, and get them out. if you compare the Oprah interview to the Netflix documentaries, there's things there that they don't even mention that are kind of a miss. For example, the secret wedding that they had before the actual wedding, that's mm-hmm. not even mentioned. Um, this issue of race, of Archie, that's not brought up in the documentaries at all. I found the documentaries to be quite boring. There was not a lot of drama in them. They blamed mm-hmm. the media for a lot of it. But then you come out with this book. Which is quite actually, I think this, this, the title of a spare, you know, the fact that Charles said you've given me an air and a spare, I think that's yeah. actually quite a great it's a line. Yeah. It's an awful line, but yeah. it's a great line. And he's being so honest. And I think Harry maybe is a little bit, a tiny little bit naive in that, and that obviously mm. he wants to provide for his family and he's being paid so much money. Yeah. But like, but is this the wise way to do it? Like, yeah. you shouldn't yeah. reveal every personal detail of your mm. asp- of your life. I yeah. Think. I mean, they live unusual, bizarre, strange lives as members of a royal family. They are not like quote unquote normal people. And so there are different pressures on them. They have to live everything out publicly. Yeah. But what we're seeing now is the disintegration of a relationship between two brothers because of all of this. And that's kind of the sad thing about mm. it. And at the same time, maybe they are better off being a strange that you know that, that can be normal yeah. too um, but I, I don't have a massive interest in, in all of this but I do find it fascinating seeing how they are doing so much media coverage but mm. also saying we want yeah. our privacy and I don't yeah. think you can have the two of those uh, things I hope that is something which is put to him uh, on that interview which airs as I said to, uh, tonight on ITV and on Virgin Media 1 uh, that airs at 9 o'clock uh, we're out of time uh, Aoife Barry Gabby Gadavitskita thank you very much for joining us 
On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.